Welcome to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. I'm Tracy Ainsworth from the University of New South Wales. In this podcast series, we will talk to marine experts about the marine environments that we have right on our doorsteps and what we can do to help conserve and protect these blue spaces. Dr. Christina Kellogg, welcome to Deep Blue On My Doorstep. You're a marine scientist with the United States Geological Survey and a specialist in corals, coral reefs, deep sea coral reefs. Um, It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Happy to be here. Uh, Chris, you've had an incredible life. You you actually grew up literally with the sea on your doorstep. Um, Is that what started you spending your life studying coral reefs? I I definitely think so. And I've certainly chosen to make that clear to my parents that the reason I'm not a medical doctor like they always dreamed is entirely their fault because they chose to take me as a small child on a sailboat and run away to the Caribbean. So what did they really expect? (laughs) Nice. Sounds idyllic. How long were you living on a sailboat in the Caribbean? Let's see. We ran away from the continental US when I was about three years old and lived on the boat until I was a senior in college. And then I moved away from the Caribbean to go to college in mainland US and to go to grad school. Wow, that that's absolutely amazing. You must have seen some incredible things with the sea as your doorstep, literally the sea as your doorstep. Uh, it's, it's funny because, I mean, you, you notice as a kid, actually, I would argue what I saw a lot of was books because since we were always moving around and I was homeschooled first through eighth grade because we were always on the move, I spent a ridiculous amount of time reading books. And so actually, to be truthful, I grew up thinking that I had drawn the short end of the stick because all the people I read about in books had things like yards and they went to the mall and they did all of these things that I didn't get to do. And the great thing is that I went back to the continental U.S. for college and I explained this theory of life to people who had grown up with yards and malls as opposed to growing up on a boat in the Caribbean. And they quickly disabused me of the idea that I had not you know, won the lottery <laughs> as far as childhoods go. So you really didn't miss out on anything. <laughs> yes, the yards and malls were still there when I got there. Yeah, <laughs> not, not that unchanged from what they would have been when you were three, probably. <laughs> Um, Do you remember what it was, though, that after all that time around reefs and sailing around the Caribbean, why it was you decided to go into marine science? I, I actually do. It was a specific person. So my senior year of high school, so I did go to high school in one of the island schools, we had this incredible uh, teacher whose name was Mark Deby, and he came up with what for our school was a revolutionary idea of taking us out on field trips. And so he was teaching a marine biology class, and he actually took us out of the classroom and, you know, showed us that there's, you know, seagrass beds and that those connect to the mangroves, which then connect to the coral reef. And all of these ecosystems sort of flow together and there's connections between them. And at least for me, it really made me see things that had been in front of me that whole time in a completely different way. And it was, I had up until that point, I had planned to go to college as a business student. And after that class, my senior year, I shifted to major in biology because I was really taken by what I learned in that class. Wow, that's amazing. Um, high school science teachers have a pretty huge mm-hmm. impact. And it's um, so many people that I talk to who say that it's something that happened in high school, a particular field trip or a class or a teacher who inspired them to kind of see the world a little bit differently. 
Yeah, no, it really, you can never underestimate. It makes me think about the fact in, you know, when I'm interacting with, you know, summer interns or undergrads or anybody, you never know that just even a day might be something that causes someone to completely change how they view what they want to do with their life. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely amazing. It's interesting before you talked about um, connectivity between, you know, seagrasses and mangroves and coral reefs. Some of your earliest work looked at a much larger scale of connectivity. You looked at dust storms and mm-hmm. their impact on, on ocean health and just how far that dust travels. Can you explain that a bit more? Sure. When I first joined the U.S. Geological Survey as a postdoctoral fellow, there was a project that was just spinning up at that time to look at the microbial communities that might be transported between continents in these giant dust events. So with satellite imagery, you can actually see these huge pulses of dust, say, that come off Saharan Africa across the entire Caribbean and well into the United States. And from the opposite side of the world, from the Taklamakan and Gobi Desert, off of Asia, through, you know, the Pacific and impacting the West Coast of the U.S. And seeing the magnitude of these events by satellite, we had questioned, could there be microbes traveling in them? And initially, the sort of response we got from the community was, well, no, you know, there's a lot of UV and it's, and it's very dry and desiccated. And so surely everything is getting sterilized and nothing would make it. And we started out doing culture-based work because certainly you can probably pick up DNA signatures anywhere, and so we really wanted to know. And in fact, the answer was no. There's a lot of things, particularly fungi and spore-forming bacteria, that were perfectly happy to make that transition. And so having found that sort of kicked off a lot of interest in then looking at, you know, could there be coral pathogens, which is why we were looking at it, but could there be agricultural pathogens? Or at a more basic level, were there higher levels of asthma on certain Caribbean islands because of these regular pulses of dust that I incidentally used to clean off my parents' boats on a regular basis? So there was a circle (laughs) in my life in that project too, versus even just, you know, we had interest from people in sort of defense, because if you don't know what the background level of certain soil organisms, including the genus Bacillus, is from these dust events, would you mistakenly think there was something there that wasn't natural yeah. Or could someone put something in knowing that we didn't really know what the background level was? And so there were a lot of different angles that caused people to take a new look at those massive dust events and sort of understand there was this atmospheric highway of microbes <laughs> moving around the world in them. That's really cool, atmospheric highway of microbes. <laughs> Slightly scary, though. <laughs> uh, what do you think was the, the biggest take-home, though, from, from that work in terms of ocean health? Um, so we never specifically found there there was a couple of of coral disease the problem with coral disease as you well know is yeah. we don't always have a clear picture of what the causative pathogen is and so it wasn't like we could screen the dust and say okay was pathogen a b or c there because we don't really know what they are but we were looking for one in in particular which was the fungus aspergillus sedawii which had been linked to the sea fan purpling and we did not find that but we found other things that could potentially have been pathogens. So being able to say that the possibility was there and therefore more people needed to study this, but also looking at it from non-microbial angles. So we had people involved who were chemists looking at tiny amounts of um, personal care products Mm. or 
um, PAHs, PCBs, things like that, which in parts per billion could really make a difference potentially in a downstream ecosystem. And so getting a sense of that, metals, all of the things that were in this dust. And again, the first response people had was, well, this dust has been, you know, moving across the ocean for millennia. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, that's true. But the people living in the source region didn't use to burn tires and human mm. waste and other things, which then injects a different microbial and chemical, yep, you know, inoculum yeah. into yeah. that dust as it starts coming over. And so it was, you know, sort of re-triggering that because interestingly, when we did re some review articles and I went back in the literature, you could see what I've seen in some other fields where the science was cyclical. There was a big pulse where people were actually looking at aerosol microbiology, both in terms of dust and regular background, sort of in the 30s. And then the person who was at the forefront of it died in a plane accident trying oh. to take samples. And then suddenly no one was looking at it. And then there was a big pulse again in the 70s and a bunch of people were looking at it. And then it sort of fell out of favor. And then again, we sort of came in the early 2000s and there was a lot of attention. And then it sort of, you know, has come down and is in the middle. And I was glad to see even when the USGS stopped having that project that several other groups at universities around the world picked that up and started looking at all these different angles. Yeah. So for people who haven't, haven't experienced it, how, how frequent are these big dust storms? Uh, you mentioned um, they've been going on for a long time. It's seasonal. And so it's particularly like during hurricane season, which is actually terrific because they can impede the formation of hurricanes. And so where the dust is coming off is also where a lot of hurricanes form right off the coast of Africa. So now we're always like, yay, there's a Saharan <laughs> dust layer. Get in there. Yeah. Um, it, but literally, I think in the Bahamas, which are basically carbonate sand spits, there is a layer of red clay. And that is strictly dust that has moved soil from Africa over wow. to those islands. There's entire swaths of the rainforest in South America that depend on nutrients that come from that aerosolized dust that's coming over. That's amazing, that kind of connectivity that you have an entire system that's reliant on a highway, atmospheric highway of dust and, and microbes coming across. So you work in the atmosphere, but you also work in the deep sea, which is how we first started to meet. Um, You've done some pretty incredible things with your deep sea coral research. How deep have you gone? Um, let's see. The deepest dive I've made personally was 2,700 feet. So that would be what, just under a meter, a thousand meters? Uh -huh. That's um, phenomenal. And that's in a, in a submersible yeah. that, that you do that. How long does a dive that deep take? Um, it, it, it depends. So yeah. it, it's more dependent on the submersible than it is on yeah. the depth. So most of the submersibles I was in, the Delta or the Johnson Sea Link, their battery life is about four hours. So a typical dive would be about yeah. four hours. The one dive I got to do in the refurbished Alvin deep submergence vehicle, that one has a lot longer battery life. So that was a nine hour dive. Wow. Even though we weren't terribly deep, but you could stay under that much longer. For, for nine hours, that's phenomenal. And how many people are in the submersibles generally when you go? Uh, typically, typically it's, it's two. In the Alvin, there's room for three. So yeah. there's two scientists and then a pilot. Just how much room do you have? How much space so do you have? It depends. So the Delta, which is truly shaped like, you know, the bathtub toys of a little yellow submarine. So yeah. like a sort of cigar tube with a conning tower. In that one, the scientist, me, is laying 
in the length of the tube in sort of the fetal position looking out a porthole and the person is sitting over me in the conning tower piloting Mm -hmm. versus the Johnson C-Link had a big acrylic bubble. And so there was room for me and a pilot to sit and we're sort of sitting shoulder to shoulder. um, But my knees aren't hitting the front of the acrylic tube. Although I would argue that being petite is a real plus in submersible (laughs) work. And then there's two other people in a separate compartment behind us that are, you know, in communication by radio. The Alvin, their new titanium sphere is large enough that, like I said, there's three people. So the two scientists are sort of lying down on either side and then the pilot's in a chair in the center. But the sphere is tall enough that I was able to stand up without bending over. Oh, wow. So if you get a cramp, you can stretch a little bit in that one. (laughs) Yeah, in that one. Yeah. What was the most incredible thing you've seen on these dives? Almost every dive is is unique because you know you're seeing some part of the seafloor that potentially no one has ever seen yeah. before. My favorite thing is when we would come up in the Johnson Sea Link, which had the big acrylic bubble, is we would turn off all of the lights in the sub because, of course, yeah. when you're you're below about you know 100 meters, you're bringing your own light. The natural light isn't reaching there even at midday. Yeah. We would turn off all the lights, and as you come up slowly through the water column and bump into things everything phosphoresces or bioluminesces like crazy. And so it's sort of like coming through an underwater disco the whole way up as your bubbles trigger all of these little gelatinous things to bioluminesce. And I absolutely loved it. Oh man, that's amazing. Uh, Most people think tropical corals, you know, Caribbean, yes, corals, deep sea, not so much, but there is quite a lot of coral in the deep sea. Uh, Whereabouts do you normally go when you're looking for deep sea corals or or where are the places that that come to your mind? So the very first place I ever um, worked on deep sea corals was in the Aleutian Islands. So up off of, you know, between Alaska and Russia, sort of along the, the Bering Strait where they filmed the most dangerous catch. Um, And then I've done work inside the Gulf of Mexico and then in some of the submarine canyons off of the east coast of the U.S., sort of working down that entire coastline. And I've also collaborated with some people in Norway because there's quite a few deep sea corals in the fjords and along the North Sea. Yeah, it's amazing how understudied those cold and deep sea corals and and the reefs they form are. Um, have you seen a lot of deep sea reefs? Uh, is that something you're targeting when you when you're doing those dives? So, by well, one, I will tell you, yeah. a lot of the community doesn't like applying the word reef only because yeah. its traditional you know meaning is something that ships can run into, and we're deep <laughs> enough that that is not going to happen, and Absolutely. you certainly hope it won't happen with your submersible. Yeah. So, I mean, in a lot of cases, many of them are not stony corals, so those tend to be referred to as coral gardens because it's sort of like a bunch of, you know, the equivalent would be a bunch of sea fans or gorgonians like that, a yeah. soft coral assemblage. When you do have some of the big stony corals that form those big mounds sometimes they call them mounds or bioherms and and those are really impressive but whether it's you know soft coral gardens or stony coral mounds or some combination they're these incredible biodiversity hotspots in the deep ocean and so once you get that three-dimensional structure it's like build it and they will come so you get all (laughs) these other fish and invertebrates and microbes and everything is suddenly there yeah. And the difficulty of accessing these places, um, hundreds of metres up to, you said, a thousand metres, is really what's kind of limiting discovery of, of that biodiversity and being able to describe it and, and work out what's happening and if it's impacted by, um, 
by what we do on the surface really far away. Um, are we still, though, able to get an insight into whether these places are impacted by what we do? It, we are, but as you'd imagine, because for the most part to even see them, much less collect samples, you have to have a surface support ship of a reasonable size and then an asset, whether that's a submersible or remotely operated vehicle, meaning a large robot that's usually tethered to the ship by a long cable. One of those things is typically how we visualize and or collect samples from them. And those are not inexpensive. Um, what I've been seeing is a move like through organizations like XPRIZE or the Schmidt Ocean Institute to really try and incentivize development of automated systems, whether for mapping or for shooting you know, camera footage, just so that we have a better sense of what is down there without having to do these sort of little pinpoint visits that we can manage with you know, ships and you know, human-controlled assets. Yeah. So it continues to be that kind of undiscovered frontier that we're, we're not at yet. But some people would say, well, why do we need to know? And I know, I know it's important. Like the discovery is amazing. Just being able to find new things is incredible. But for you, why, why do you think we need to know about these places? So the bulk of my deep sea work has been funded by government agencies in my country who are leasing blocks of undersea land, either for oil and gas development or for alternative energy like wind farms. And so they have groups of scientists go out, one, to map the area, to look at what's there, and to really understand the ecosystem. You know, how connected is it to other coral areas? How, you know, what kind of fish are using it as a nursery? What, you know, what kind of true biodiversity is there? so that we know can identify these areas and make educated management decisions about, okay, we need to cordon off this particular area and protect it. We can still use this area over here for oil and gas. And in general, as, as human needs, whether it's fishing, whether it's mining, whether it's energy, is moving into deeper water. And so to just map and understand these things before we might unintentionally obliterate something that is unique is really important. And whether that is, you know, from the sense of medicine, you know, any of the microbes that are associated with these corals, a lot of them are unusual because of the, the pressure, the cold, the variability of the environment. So they could be this, you know, storehouse of new natural products, whether that was drugs or enzymes that we haven't discovered yet. From a sense of food, a lot of these deep sea coral areas are actually nurseries for commercial fish that we enjoy eating. And so you need to make sure that we have enough of those areas to keep the fish stocks level. Um, yeah. Probably other, other connections <laughs> that I haven't even thought of just because of how, like I said, things sort of ripple down from the coral to the fish through some of the other invertebrates. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, um, and, and the point you make about we don't want to lose lose something without actually really realizing how important it was first you know once the damage is done um, and it's felt rebuilding becomes much harder particularly I mean places like that where you have to rely on it coming back on its own and the tropical systems that have been really damaged by uh, bleaching events on reefs or disease events. I mean, they're a really good example of, of how challenging it is to, to come back and to rebuild. And you guys have seen that um, with the coral wasting disease. Um, yes, have you, the stony coral tissue loss disease yes. that's been 
up and down the Florida reef tract is now starting to pop up throughout the Caribbean. And that's been pretty devastating for the reefs. Oh, it's been absolutely awful. I mean, we've had the Caribbean obviously has plenty of coral diseases and has had them pop up here and there since the 1970s. This disease has has gotten a lot more people to pay attention and the research community has really rallied forward on it just because it's impacting a greater number of coral species as opposed to just a few of them that the mortality was just incredibly fast. So, you know, a small to medium-sized coral colony could go from having a lesion to completely dead on the scale of weeks to months, as opposed to, you know, a lot of other diseases, you might have a lesion. And then at the end of summer, it would sort of go dormant or maybe stop entirely. Whereas this is entire colonies just being killed in a very short period of time. Yeah. I noticed um, some reports of some areas they're trying to, were trying to take corals out before they got diseased in the hope that the disease would go through and then they could actually even put them back. And I think for me, that was, um, that really highlighted how challenging it is to try and address change and and rebuild if you're relying on taking something out while it may be healthy and then putting it back. Do you know, did they have much success with with trying that approach? So it's still ongoing. So yes, there was an absolutely incredible, um, I think they called it sort of genetic rescue where people went out, especially for certain species where that were extremely susceptible, where suddenly like, you know, there was you could count on one or two hands the number of colonies that were still available in the Florida Keys of that particular coral. And so, yes, people went out ahead of the disease line and, you know, collected colonies, spread them out through zoos and aquaria all throughout the country. I mean, it was whoever had space and could take them. It was sort of a refugee situation with corals and, and kept them and then have been maintaining them, have been captive breeding them to try and keep the genetic diversity up. There's several um, organizations, including Moat Marine Laboratories, that have been creating small fragments and in doing so have been sort of increasing the population so that fragments can start being outplanted. Because, you know, we still don't know what's causing it and we don't know how long it might hang out. And so being able to create millions of fragments, you can start outplanting and not worry that you're going to lose everything. You can sort of test the waters with some of these small fragment outplants and see how it goes before you start sort of repatriating all of these corals that are now being held in zoos and aquaria around the country. And this is a disease outbreak on a massive area of coral reefs, but it's also been going on for, is it four years now that it's uh, it been started going? in 2014? 2014. So six years okay. of a disease outbreak on coral reefs tracking from Florida through the Caribbean. And we, we still don't know what's causing it. Yeah, so it was moving sort of up and down the Florida reef track from 2014. And then I think it was just late 2018 or early 2019 that it suddenly started popping up across the Caribbean. Um, In terms of understanding how hard it is to determine a disease that's killing corals and what that cause of disease is. You have a coral that's living in seawater with lots of other corals and fish. And so it's, it's a microbial soup that, um, that's there. How close are we? You're, You're a microbial ecologist. Do you think we're very close to being able to work out what's causing this disease? Well, so I've been on the, the brink of putting forward an experiment. So I had done a pilot last October to make sure that this would actually work. And then I've literally just had a postdoc start this past month. And 
were it not for COVID, we would have already run this experiment, but because all of the institutions in Florida have basically been locked down for people's safety, we haven't been able to do it yet. But I, I had an idea to do something a little bit different that I think could really narrow the community's focus in that. So sort of typically what everyone has done, and, and you've certainly seen that in Australia, is people will go, okay, well, probably a bacterium. So we'll start there. And so people do a, you know, a 16S, they do a, a basically create a bacterial phone book of who's in there. And they do that for the healthy corals and the disease corals, and then compare the two, hoping that something obvious will, you know, pop out that's in the sick ones that's not in the healthy ones. Yeah. And of course, because of how much background noise there is of just variability among corals and whatever, that didn't happen. So, you know, there's some things but it was very general and, you know, they could be secondary infections following something else. It really wasn't, it didn't give us a clear path to follow. And so in the meantime, people have basically been taking every possible approach. So using histopathology to try and look at it from the cellular level and figure out what does the lesion look like? Is there anything associated with the lesion? Like I said, people now trying to do meta-analysis across multiple different lab groups, bacterial studies to see if there's maybe something we can uncover by looking across aggregate data. Um, certainly people have been trying to look for potential viruses. So, you know, every possible angle. The idea I put forward was trying to use physical size fractionation. So to we know that whatever the agent is, it moves through water because a we've seen it move along the Florida reef track, but also there have been transmission tests in tanks. And so it can move from a piece of coral in direct contact with another coral, but it can also move through water if two pieces are sitting in the same tank. So my idea was to take healthier diseased corals, put them in mesocosms, which is to say buckets <laughs> and let them sit there for a couple of days and shed whatever they're shedding into the water. And so the water you've started with, is basically sterile. It's been filtered and UV treated. So it doesn't have the background that natural seawater has. And even though the coral is shedding microbes into it, it's not going to be the same level of noise that is present in the coral mucus and tissue. And so then we take the corals out, concentrate the microbial community in that bucket of water, mm -hmm. and then size separate that into 0.8 microns. So maybe things like fungi or toxin producing diatoms or protists. 0.2 to catch the bacteria, 0.025 to catch the viruses, and then cut pieces of those filters and put them alone or in combination on corals and then freeze the rest. And then watch and see which size causes disease signs in the corals. And then we can go sequence just that one and try and line that up against all the other community data that already exists and hope that I probably don't think we would identify one thing, but we'll narrow the focus to a taxonomic group and then be able to focus people's attention just on that instead of having to investigate every possibility simultaneously. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's, in that's incredible detective work to try and work out even what type of organism is causing that. Because if you know what type of organism is causing it, then you can start to work out what might be some of the underlying drivers, right? Whether it's, if it's fungal disease or viral disease or bacterial disease, it helps to target why this disease happened and where it came from. And it also, it also has implications, you know, trying to figure out the transmission, like how is it popping up in the Caribbean? Some people have said, you know, is it moving in ballast water? Is it moving in biofilms on the outside of ships? Is it something else? 
if you knew what it was, it would give you insight into those potential ways it's moving. Is it moving in some kind of, you know, animal vector? Until you know what it is, it's harder to guess which of those mechanisms might be at play. And then also it gives you some, you know, at least a narrower focus of what could we do to try and mitigate it while while we're identifying it further. Yeah, exactly. And, and when you can put those corals that are being isolated um, back into the normal reefs that they've come from, um, once you know what's causing it and, and what's driving the disease, then you can then start to take those corals back. Um, that's an enormous undertaking. It really has been incredible. Like the, the response in Florida is this, like you said, absolutely enormous multi-agency effort that, you know, federal government agencies are involved, state government agencies are involved, a lot of, of NGOs, non-government agencies, a lot of academic labs, like there is a huge all hands on deck response to this in terms of the research, in terms of restoration technology, in terms of this sort of rescue, in terms of intervention, you know, people are out there, even though we don't know what it is, test driving different things that might, you know, slow or stop it until we can find out. Yeah, exactly. And and the fact it's been going on so long, um, it, it's a lot to to get your head around that um, this enormous area, uh, all these different species, it's been going on for six years and we're still not really close yet to getting an answer for how do we solve this problem. It really highlights, I think, the enormous problem that you have in the environment when you when you start to change things and have things like disease outbreaks, just how much work is involved in trying to um, discover the problem, find the drivers, rehabilitate and restore it to, to what it was. It really highlights that you, you're better to know first and prevent the problem before it gets before it gets out of hand. So it's a it's an incredible lesson for people working on reefs everywhere to try and avoid a situation like that on other reefs. What do you think? You've been you've lived on coral reefs since you were three. <laughs> you've seen them from the deep sea through to the shallowest places. You've seen these all these kind of events happen. What do you think are the most critical things that people need to know about protecting reefs? About protecting reefs, um, that you can't underestimate the amount of human influence. So, I mean, some of the most beautiful reefs I've ever seen in, in tropical corals have been in, you know, the most isolated Pacific islands. So it really does seem like the further away you are from massive amounts of people and the more dilution that the, you know, ocean can provide, the better off they're doing. And as a result, so people go, well, then surely, you know, the deep sea corals, because they're offshore and deep, you know, they're buffered because they're far out. And while initially I, I would argue that, yes, they are buffered to a degree, which is part of why I enjoy studying them, because it's sort of like, yes, could I see how this system works before it gets really messed up? Because that could be really insightful in a way that we may not be able to gain in shallow water systems anymore. But having said that, I don't think I've ever been on a dive, whether it was in a submersible, whether we were using a remotely operated vehicle, whether it was a telepresence dive that I was watching the camera feed from the remotely operated vehicle while sitting at my desk. I don't think there's been a single dive where I didn't see trash. So whether that was plastic bags, whether it was fishing line, I think my all-time favorite image was a dive where we were 9,000 feet. So that would be roughly 3,000 meters 
And there's this, it was a chemosynthetic environment. And there was this huge, beautiful tube worm bush that was probably hundreds of years old. And nestled right in the center of it was a Budweiser beer can. Oh, no. And so you really just, you know, even things that are very, very deep in the ocean or very, very far away from shore are still being impacted by us right now. Yeah. That's that's phenomenal <laughs> that that it goes that far and, and to be in such a pristine and beautiful place and, and so the amount of effort it takes to get there and, and document what's there and how it lives and to find that we've kind of already reached it inadvertently. So so what can people do? Reduce their reduce their impact? It's certainly, I mean, you know, recycling plastics watching out, you know, a lot of the local um, coastal communities are really careful. And I know here in Florida, this is true about what goes into the the sewers, because whatever goes in, whether it's again, fertilizer from your lawn, whether it's, you know, if the something overflows and you end up with gray water that has, you know, shampoos or personal care products, all of that, if it goes out has an impact. And again, yes, it's diluted over time, but the more we can sort of, you know, keep it to ourselves, not have garbage, not have things, you know, drain into watersheds that then, you know, it doesn't just disappear. It just keeps going further away from us and it is impacting everything from us all the way out. Yeah, exactly. Well, you said at the start, you know, an atmospheric superhighway of dust and um, you've seen, um, you've seen uh, rubbish through the deepest part of the ocean. So we are incredibly connected to each other and to the environments that might seem a bit further away from, from where we live. Um, with all of that experience you've had in all of these incredible places, do you have a favourite blue space? Um, I do. So I told you, my I've worked in, in a lot of places in the Caribbean and the Pacific. And so far, my absolute favorite place is an island called Ofu, which is in the Manua Islands of American Samoa. Mm-hmm. And in, in the best case scenario, it takes a minimum of three days to get there and typically more because you have to fly from Hawaii out to the main island of Tutuila. And then things get, you know, there might be a flight to Ofu or there might not. There might be a ferry to Ofu or there might not. At least one time when I was doing research, I waited a couple of days, ended up getting a flight to another island, which was Tau, had to drag all my stuff off the plane, convince a random person in the airport parking lot to put my stuff in the back of their pickup truck, drive me to the other side of the island, where I then convinced a fisherman to put all of my gear in his fishing boat take the open ocean crossing back to Ofu and it has a a barrier reef very like in the movie Castaway with Tom Cruise. And so we sort of had to wait for a wave coast over the reef crest and then sort of landed on the beach. Like we were storming Normandy and then dragged all my (laughs) gear off, off the boat onto, you know, someone else's truck, which then took me to the place I was staying where I was actually going to do my research. Wow. But I think some, even though it's really difficult to get out there, it is the most amazing reefs I had ever seen that, lagoon that sort of encircles that part of the island which is part of an american national park had at least 80 species of corals more fish than i could ever count um i actually went back there once deliberately on vacation for three weeks because i never got to see enough when i was working (laughs) and i circled pretty much every day and every day i saw something new that i had never seen before ever 
I mean, it was just, it was like being in the best aquarium that nature could provide. Oh, wow. Does that then give you a renewed sense when you get back to work once you've seen, once you've seen that and lived in it and, and just experienced that remoteness and, and beauty? Did it, did it fire you up to keep going? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, people, you know, haven't understood maybe that, you know, one of the reasons I've really been pushing in the Florida response to this coral disease, even before it started popping up in the Caribbean is because one, I knew it probably would. And again, that that's my backyard. Like those are my reefs personally. And so, yeah, I take it very personally as it starts popping up further away when we need to contain it because yeah, deep sea reefs, if something damages them, those corals take hundreds to thousands of years to grow. And so wiping them out means they're not coming back in, you know, our lifetime. Shallow water corals aren't that much, you know, far behind in terms of if something is really damaged, it won't be our lifetime or potentially, you know, your children's lifetime before we get something back that looks the way we remembered it. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and it's really important that those next generations of people growing up, whether it's on a boat in the Caribbean or an island in Samoa, that they get to see and experience these places as beautifully and as pristine as they've been in the past. For kids out there listening to this um, or, or wanting to make a difference, um, what kind of path would you recommend? Um. Unbelievably, uh, my parents gave me some really good advice. So I told you I was really fired up by this marine biology course that I took my senior year of high school. And so I wanted to be a major in marine biology. And my parents were horrified, mainly because they were pretty sure that would not actually be a living job that, you know, I would end up coming back and having to move into their house when I was 30. (laughs) They really wanted me to, you know, become a medical doctor. And I really had no interest. And so we ended up compromising and I agreed to get an undergraduate degree in biology, which was what most of the pre-med students were also doing. And I think my parents were really counting on peer pressure to sway me from marine science into medicine, which just goes (laughs) to show you how well they didn't know me at the time. But having that very general biology background was actually significantly better than specializing too early Mm. in marine science because I came out of that going, okay, I still love marine, but I really enjoyed genetics. And then I went to graduate school and the lab I ended up in was basically doing microbiology, but using molecular biological techniques, which was sort of what happens if you take genetics and (laughs) and crammed it together with marine biology. And so having that broader background and then going into, yes, it was still marine science, but it reassured my parents when I explained that the tools I was using to answer marine biology questions were also tools that I could use to get a job in a biotechnology company or in a clinical lab at a hospital or, you know, as a university professor, like there were different things I could do with this tool set. And so I really wasn't going to have to move home and they would be fine. (laughs) Yeah. And you had lots of options. Uh, You've got an incredible story. I absolutely love it. Um, Thank you so much for joining us and for telling us about your life and your research and, um, and everything that that's been happening. Uh, One last question before we go, what's next for you? Uh, Let's see. Because of of COVID, I'm really not sure. We've pretty much had to, you know, pause everything and see, you know, what we can do, which is really frustrating because, you know, coral disease isn't waiting for, you know, us to come out of the labs. Uh, Fortunately, with the deep sea work, I I was at a analysis stage. And so I didn't have any, any deep 
blue water cruises coming up, but it's really about as soon as our institutions will let us be able to get out and run that, that size fractionation experiment so we can really make some headway on what is causing the stony coral tissue loss disease and, you know, give the community something to focus on and yeah. narrow where the, what they're looking at and what we can do about it. Yeah. And, and how we can learn from it in other places. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Absolutely. It's been a blast. Thank you for listening to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Don't forget to check out our website at events.unsw.edu.au where you'll find all the photographs from this podcast series featuring the beautiful places that we've been discussing and the organisms found in these blue spaces. 